So here's the question we're going to start with. How do you identify? How do you identify? That's a popular, sometimes a controversial question within our culture at the moment. However, this question and topic is not something new under the sun. One of the main questions that the Bible actually confronts us with is this question. It's that question, how do you identify? It's in the Bible. Now, unlike today, the question from the Bible is not asking about maybe your preferred pronouns, but when the Bible confronts you with this question, it's getting at something much deeper than that. It's peeling back all the layers of your life. It's seeking to sift through all the different relationships that you have, all the different roles that you play, and it's wanting to know what is at your core. When all of that's stripped away, what's at your core? When all of that's taken away, who are you really? What is your identity? Is the question of the Bible. Another way, is another way to ask it is, what is at the core of who you are? You may be thinking, I'm not sure how to answer that question. Who I am and what my identity is is more nuanced than being able to answer with just one answer. Well, our passage and our parable this morning, the parable of the rich man and Lazarus in Luke 16, helps peel back the layers of this question for us to help us to answer it. It confronts us with two basic options, as the parables tend to do. And it shows us the ultimate eternal end of where those two different identities end up taking us and what that looks like. What your identity is sets the course of your entire life. And what we're going to learn in this parable, it actually continues on into eternity. Your identity determines how you are impacted by life's events, whether it's good or bad, up or down, blessing or hardship, all of those things. All of the circumstances in our life are interpreted through the lens of your identity. The way and level at which they affect your life is completely based on where your identity is found. You cannot function through life and through circumstances of life without some identity. So if you don't know what your identity is, it doesn't mean you don't have one. It just means you don't know what it is, but you're functioning from a certain identity. And the question is, do you have an identity that can withstand all of life's circumstances? Do you have an identity that can stand against all of life's circumstances, no matter what it is, even the circumstance of death? Does your identity carry you through something like that? The goal of our passage this morning is to help clarify what our identity is, while at the same time it brings us back to the core of who we are. So if you can or are able, please stand. The reading of God's Word will be in Luke chapter 16, verses 19 through 31. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen, and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, 
for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things, and Lazarus in the like manner bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you a great chasm between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed. And in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that they may, they may warn them, lest they ha also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, for if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to him, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. All right, you be seated. I keep telling my elders that um, I need them to remember and remind me in the years to come to not do the parables again. <laughs> These are hard. So let's go to him and pray and ask for his help. Father, I do pray that you would speak powerfully from your word. That your spirit would cause these words to jump off the page. That they would impact our hearts. That they would convict us in the areas that we need to be convicted so that we return to you. But they would comfort us in the areas that need to be comforted. I pray that your word would do its work in our hearts, that your spirit would change us on the spot, that we would become more and more uh, people who live in light of the identity you have given us. Only you can do this. And so we ask that you would, in Jesus' name we pray, amen. I titled this sermon, The Parable of Contrast, because it's exactly what it is, right? As you read through, you can't help but notice the extreme contrast between these two men that the parable opens up with. I mean, if you're not careful, you get literary whiplash as you read from one extreme to the next in almost every verse. We have these two men on extremely opposite sides of everything. One man is rich, and we're told he's clothed in purple, which is the most expensive uh, clothes you could buy, the most expensive color. It's usually associated with royalty because of that. We're also told he has on fine linen, which means his undergarments, his underwear is even wealthy and rich. We are told that he feasted every single day. This man was covered head to toe in luxury to the point that even his underwear was expensive and luxurious. Every day we're told he feasted as if it were a special celebration. Monday, Tuesday, Saturday, it doesn't matter what day it is. He's feasting every single day. And we even told that the rich man has a gate outside of his massive estate to protect him. At this time, that was unbelievable amount of wealth. But it's at this gate that you find the opposite kind of man lying there. A very poor man in almost every measurable way. Not only did he not have fancy, expensive clothes to cover him and his body, but instead we're told that his body was covered, he was clothed in sores. These sores probably hindered him from being able to move about by himself because as we're told that he was laid down by the gate, that he had to be carried and passively put there. This man had probably never been to a feast. 
fact, he was struggling to have enough to eat in order to survive. He was not looking for extravagance, but simply crumbs that fell from the rich man's table. And lastly, we're told that he was amongst dogs. Now, these dogs aren't the cute pets that we have at our house today, but they are the mangy, disease-ridden dogs at that time, and they are licking his sores, which means it would have not only caused him pain, but made him unclean and somebody that's unapproachable. You could not have two more contrasting characters in a story than we do here. One seems to be rich in every way, living the good life. And the other one seems to be poor or a beggar in every way, struggling to even stay alive day to day. And then all of a sudden in the story, they both die and they go to the afterlife. And it's in the afterlife that these roles become reversed. The rich man who was on top in every way, we are told, goes down to Hades. That's a Jewish term for where the unrighteous ones would go, which is hell. The poor man, who was the lowest of the lows in every way, we're told, goes up to Abraham's side. That's the Jewish term for where the righteous go, which is heaven. You see, what was true on earth gets turned upside down in the afterlife. It's turned upside down. And so you have to ask this question. Is this parable teaching us? Is it saying that living a good life, that having money is bad? Is that the takeaway from this parable? That if you enjoy good things now, you will suffer later. And if you suffer now, just wait, because you're gonna get to enjoy life better. As one pastor put it, is this parable teaching us live well and in hell, and live in the pain, enjoy great gain? Is that what this parable is trying to teach us? Some commentators actually do approach it in a similar light as that, because on the surface, you could see as you read it why someone might gain that understanding. But that can't be what the parable is saying for many reasons. First of all, there are other, many other passages uh, in the Bible that directly contradict that kind of teaching. There's a whole book. You read Proverbs, and it seems to be saying the opposite. Right? So it can't be saying that. More than that, there are many godly people, even heroes of our faith, men in the Bible that are rich and wealthy and have a lot of money. There's actually one in the story that was rich on earth. The one in heaven, the po where the poor man goes. Abraham himself had tons of wealth, tons of money. So it can't be teaching us. So what's going on? Why did the two men end up where they do after they die? One in heaven and one in hell. Why is that their end and location? Answer? Identity. It's their identity that carries them to those places. You see, the biggest contrast in this parable is actually something that's not found in any other parable that there is. The biggest contrast that we get confronted with is not actually seen in any other parable. And that is that one of these men have a, has a name, has a proper name, and the other does not. Lazarus, the poor man, is given a name, but the rich man is not. In every other parable, no one's given a name. There's no proper name in any other parable. You usually get something like sower or shepherd or king, Samaritan, so elder brother, so on and so forth. But here we get a proper name. We get Lazarus. He is named in our parable. So why is the rich man not given a name too? 
Why is only one of them named in the parable and not the other? You see, as often as the case in the Bible, someone's name tells us a lot about them. It tells us who that person is. It tells us what they're really like. It tells us what at, is at their core. And Lazarus means God is my help. So him getting the proper name is telling us the reality of who he is at his core. His name means God is my help. That is his identity. But the rich man does not receive a name. Why? Because the title rich man encapsulates who he is. His wealth is where he places his identity. That is all he is. If you take away his status and his wealth, in essence, he ceases to exist because that has become his identity. We see this clearly of what happens after they die, that one is based their entire life on God being their help, their identity. And the other has based their entire life on their status, on their achievements, and on their wealth. That's why Abraham says what he does in verse 25, that the rich man has already received all his good in the life on earth. But he can't take those things with him. Identity carries over after death, but not the things that he bases identity on. Those can't go. Money, wealth, status are all great things in and of themselves. Don't hear what I'm not saying or what the parable's not saying. They're great things in and of themselves, but they make terrible places to try to find your identity in. These things have a unique ability to blind us to the reality of our need for God and his saving work in our life. They have the unique ability to blind us that we are actually needy before God for his help. The rich man in his culture and this time was most likely a very religious man. In fact, he calls Abraham father. He's probably a very religious man who not only believed in the God of the Bible, but sought to obey his commandments. See, the Pharisees, the religious elites, and the, the, many of the Jewish people believe that if you are wealthy in this time, it's because God has rewarded you for your obedience. The reason why you have much is because you've done much, and God has recognized that. And so he's blessing them with wealth and money. They also taught and believed the opposite as well. That if you're poor, it is because God was punishing you for your disobedience. That the reason that you don't have wealth, status, and money is because of what you have done or have not done in obedience towards him. In other words, God owed you good things when you were good and owed you punishment when you were bad. In essence, what they believed and what they taught is that you determine what God is like towards you. In other words, you can put him in your debt to owe you good things if you obey. You see, money and wealth is chosen in this parable not because it's bad, Edmund, sigh of relief, <laughs> not because it's bad, right? But because it's one of the many places that can blind us to the reality of our, that, of our deep need for God's saving help in our life. And the opposite's true as well. People who have nothing or very little are faced daily with the reality that their need for intervening help from outside of them is something that they're faced with every single day. 
specifically for help and hope that can go beyond the circumstances that they are currently in. What is fascinating about this parable is not only is it the only parable where someone is named, given a proper name, it's also the only parable where it takes us into the afterlife. Many parables say this is what the kingdom of heaven is like, or this, you can compare this to the kingdom of heaven. But this is the only parable where it takes us there. It takes us into see insight what the afterlife is kind of like. And it's, we got to be careful not to take too much away from this, right? Because it is a parable, but it does tell us a lot. You know, many people say, uh, I've talked with or I've heard that they say they don't believe in God of the Bible because I can't believe in a God who sends people to hell. Right? Have you heard that? That I can't believe in God because I don't believe in a God who sends people to hell. But their picture of God and of hell does not line up usually with what the Bible reveals to us about hell. What people generally picture when they say something like that is that, that there are people who are screaming and torment, begging and clawing to get out of hell and longing and begging to go to heaven. They picture people pleading for forgiveness from God and they picture God distantly uh, with his back turned, arms crossed, kind of laughing, saying it's too late. But the curious thing about the second half of our parable is that the dialogue portion, where it starts in verse 24, is that while the rich man asked for many things, what's most striking is what he never asked for. Did you catch that? He never asked to be taken out of hell. Isn't that interesting? He never asked to be taken out of hell. He asked for relief, some relief while he's in hell. He asked for a special messenger to deliver a warning to his brothers about hell, but he never asked for himself to be taken out of hell. And he never shows any sign of repentance or even remorse for what caused him to be there. You see, this lines up with God's judgment and hell as described in Romans 1. Because it's in Romans 1 that it says that hell is basically God giving you over to your desires, to your lust, not going against them. Hell is God not going against your desires. It's giving you over to them. The rich man asked for Abraham to send Lazarus to, uh, to him to give some relief from his torment. Imagine Abraham, what he was thinking, what he must have been like when he heard this request. Oh, so you do know this man's name. Oh, you know, you know who he is now, the one who is in need all those times outside of your gate, outside of your property, just wanting crumbs. But now, now you know him. You didn't acknowledge him then, but now you do. In all your wealth, you never paid him attention, you never paid any attention to him because you thought he was beneath you. But the irony is that the poor man who was in desperate need and only asked for crumbs is now being summoned by the rich man who is also in desperate need himself. And he only asked for a drip of water. You would think that this would cause him to have some empathy, but rather than cause the rich man to see how he should have, have had compassion and mercy on Lazarus, now being able to relate to him, what happens is he still thinks, the rich man still thinks 
and treats Lazarus as if he's beneath him. As if he's someone that he can order to serve him in his state of need, despite where they are. The rich man still has his, binding, his blinding identity where he doesn't want God and he thinks he's owed something that people who he deems are beneath him. Abraham informs him that these locations they're in are permanent, that there's no going back and forth. But the rich man is still in his identity and foolishly thinks, okay, if I can't have Lazarus as my waiter, I will utilize him as my errand boy. I'll send him to my brothers to warn them about this place. But Abraham informs him that they have the Bible. They should realize their need of God through the word of God. Abraham is telling Lazarus that is what they need. Not another message, not a messenger. But still the rich man thinks they need something more. They need something more outside of the word of God. They need a message from the dead. And do you see what he's implying in asking this? Do you see what he's revealing of his heart and his identity as he's asking for this message to be sent that they won't believe from the word of God? What he's saying is my issue, the reason I am here is that I didn't have enough information. Or at least the information was not presented to me in a convincing way. The problem, in other words, is not me. The rich man, in essence, is still holding on to the lie that where he is is not his fault. But he didn't receive what he really needed, which is what he's trying to give his brothers. Don't you see what his identity is telling him? The problem was never in here. The problem was always out there. The message, the people, the way it came. In other words, he doesn't realize that he failed God and his word. He thinks they failed him. That is hell. Being given over to the belief that you're not really in need of God's saving work in your life. Because the truth is, is you really don't think you're that bad. You are never the problem. And we get a glimpse into what this misery is like here on earth in some ways, right? I mean, this reflects what happens with addictions, doesn't it? That at first, there's something we get from them. There's something pleasurable that we do get from them. And so we're drawn into that sense of pleasure, what we're looking for. But that pleasure starts to wear off. And so we need more of the same thing to try to achieve a similar state. But eventually, that substance is no longer something that we use for enjoyment or pleasure. We don't enjoy it anymore, but it makes us miserable. It makes our life Miserable, but the truth is we can't stop. In fact, when you're in addiction, you can't imagine a life outside of that world and that life. That is life to you. You can't imagine a life without X, Y, or Z, whatever the addiction is. Hell, what this parable is showing us, is being in that eternal life, in that state for eternity. In that sense, in that blindness for eternity. 
It's what's happening here in our parable. It's showing us that an identity that we take on, that's outside of depending on God's gracious saving work, always leads us to hell. Hell is not filled with people seeking to get out, people who are repenting of all they've done, but is hell is being given over to the chosen identity that you have outside of God and his help in your life for all eternity. Part of what makes hell, hell, is it that you chose it. That's what you wanted. C.S. Lewis, in his book, The Great Divorce, writes, There are only two kinds of people in the end. Those who say to God, Thy will be done. And those to whom God says in the end, Thy will be done. All that are in hell choose it. Without that self-choice, there could be no hell, end quote. This is showing us a picture and an insight to what hell is like. But it's doing so through identity. Identity that may be profitable, may be pleasurable, and may serve you in this world, on, in life, in this part of the earth. But just like um, there is nothing inherently evil or bad about being rich, there's also nothing inherently righteous or good about being poor. That's not what this passage is telling us. The point is not about how much money do you have, but do you realize your spiritually poor state of bankruptcy before God apart from his son, Jesus? Poor people know what it's like to be a beggar. They know and are faced with the reality that they can't save themselves. They can't get themselves out of the situation. They are familiar of what it is to need help outside of themselves and beyond their circumstances. However, the focus of our parable is not really on the poor man. It's not really on Lazarus, despite him having a name. In fact, he doesn't even say a word in the entire parable. He doesn't speak up at all. Why? He needs no defense. There's nothing for him to ask for. He has everything he needs. He has Jesus to speak on his behalf. The point of Lazarus is meant to awaken us to the reality of what Martin Luther's last words were on his deathbed, where he said, these are his last words, we are all beggars. We are all beggars. We are all spiritually bankrupt before God on our own. The rich man's identity rested in the lie that he was okay before God on his own terms. He thought the evidence of that was the wealth and blessings in his life. He was rich. He was a moral man who sought to live life obeying God's rule and even had the right heritage where Abraham is his father. He is like, a, he's like the Pharisee in the story of the Pharisee and the tax collector, if you remember that. You remember that story where they both go to the temple and they both pray to God? But what is this Pharisee's prayer? I thank you for all that I have, for all that I do, for all that I am. And I thank you I'm not like that tax collector over there. I have merit before you. He has nothing. And he was right. The tax collector had nothing. But he was wrong in his state towards God. But he's praying to God. He's at church. He's in the temple. Right? But his identity is not found 
in being a sinner before a holy God. His identity is in all that he does, all that he's, uh, his status and reputation that he's gained, all that he sacrificed. He believes that he is secure in his identity apart from God. He has no need for God's saving grace and forgiveness. But the rich man, but the rich man his identity could not withstand all of life's circumstances, all of life's ups and downs, all of life's changes. And therein lies the question for you and me this morning. Back to the beginning, how do you identify? Where is your identity found? Where do you look to find the core truth of who you are? To sift through all the other identities and roles. I mean, is, it, is your identity found that you're a mother, that you're a spouse, that you're smart, that you're successful, that you're hospitable, that you're a leader, that you're a Republican, that you're a Democrat, that you're thoughtful in your relationships, that you give good advice and you're a wise person? that you're healthy and physically fit, that you're theologically accurate, orthodox and right, or that you're gospel-centered. <laughs> Where's your identity found? Another way to find this answer is to ask, what do people most know you for? What do you make sure is clear in your relationships? That is often can be where, that place is often where you look to for your identity. And here's the thing, only one identity has the ability to withstand all that life can throw at you. All other identities can be lost or threatened of loss. They are not secure. Life's ups and downs can change your status as a parent, as a spouse, as a pastor, as a wealthy person, as a person with good reputation in your community. The ultimate change in life makes that very clear, right? which is death. Only one identity can survive and even thrive in the face of life after death. That is an identity before God as a beggar in need of his saving help alone. Or to say it another way, that only identity that survives is that you are a sinner trusting in the saving work of Jesus on your behalf. Nothing can change or touch that identity. Nothing. Not your failures. Not even death. That's why Paul says to live is Christ. That's your identity. And then, if that's your identity, guess what? To die is gain. Every other identity, no matter how good of life it can provide on earth, will not be able to withstand death and it will lead you into hell that you chose. It doesn't matter what good you have done, how many Sundays you were in church, how much money you gave away, or how much of the Bible you've memorized. If your identity is not found in Jesus' worth and work, the ultimate end of it is hell. It will lead you to hell. Jesus says in John 5, you search the scriptures talking to religious people because you think that in them you have eternal life. You're searching the word of God because you think it's in them that you have eternal life. And then he goes on and says, but it is they that bear witness about me. He's talking about the Old Testament. 
Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. The truth is, I think most of us know here that we can't earn our way into heaven. But what many of us, I think, get cloudy with, or I should say what a lot of churches, pastors, and Christians I've spoken with are cloudy on and seem to get wrong, is that you also can't be scared out of hell. You can't be, you can't win and earn your way into heaven. But you can't be scared out of hell either. The Bible shows us that over and over, that fear doesn't work. But our parable actually hints at that reality as well. Because that word in verse 31, convince, has a root meaning of fear. What Abraham is saying is that miracles and fear are not powerful enough to keep you out of hell. That's not what you need. Because they're not powerful enough because they can't change what the real issue is. The issue that we all have a heart that's bent on you. We all have a heart that's bent on ourselves. So we need a new heart. We need a heart that's changed and transformed. And it's only the love of God that can do that. Fear of him will not do it. Fear may make you behave and obey. It can't keep you out of hell. Only the love of God can do that. Only the Holy Spirit working through the word of the gospel, which is displayed in God's love, can change your heart. And the message that changes your heart is that you and I have a Savior. That as we read earlier in our service, he was rich in every way. Everything at his fingertips. And yet... Rather than use that as his status and his identity, he becomes poor for our sake. Poor in every way. And then we're told it's by his poverty, because he did that for us, that, be, that you and I who are beggars before him actually become rich. Because we get his wealth. Because he takes our bankrupt state before God. Don't you see what Jesus did for you even though you seek to find your identity outside of him? He went through hell so that you never will. Only that message can change your heart. He went to hell and was raised so that when you so when those whose identity is found in him die, all we get is heaven. My prayer is that you and I would know the beautiful reality that we are beggars, but we have an untouchable identity in Christ. And it's his poverty that has made us rich. So now, when you hear that question in our culture, how do you identify Maybe let your heart smile, knowing this poor beggar is rich in Christ. 